For my tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Lord, we, uh, we are challenged by this, uh, this word, this phrase. I am challenged by it, Lord. And I, I don't know that we have wept enough. I don't know that we have been challenged enough by the, the whole idea that the sinners around us are not don't see our God in us. So Lord, forgive us for that. And I pray that, Lord, You'd open our eyes and hearts and our arms through Your words this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated. I was thinking this morning when I got up, as I've, as I've shared with you uh, in the past, I don't usually have my introduction for my message until uh, Sunday morning. Usually it's one of the first things I do when I wake up on Sunday morning and begin preparing my body and you know uh, for the day I began to think and pray about you know how to introduce my message I like it being fresh so I was thinking today about my message and I was thinking about my initial stirrings the stirrings in my heart when I was a teenager for ministry and I was in my my mid-teens I felt the pull or the draw of God in my life and for the longest time, I resisted that. Uh, I had a passion for the Scriptures already in my mid-teens. Here's the actual Bible. It's, you know, I've had to put tape around it and bind it. But this is the actual Bible that I carried to high school. Uh, I would carry this Bible to high school and hide it behind my geography book. I was supposed to be reading that or my chemistry book, and I'd read the Bible. I had a real passion for the scriptures when I was in my mid-teens. And so there was something that was beginning to stir in my heart for ministry. And I actually started teaching myself Greek, you know, in my late teens just to kind of prepare for something. And I didn't know what. There was definitely something going on in my heart. But there was one thing that was hindering me from just kind of diving in and, you know, doing what they call surrendering to the ministry, to the call of God. There was one thing that was hindering me, and that was fear, but not the kind of fear that you might expect from someone who might be about to enter the ministry. It wasn't necessarily fear of public speaking, which they say is one of the, the greatest fears that people have. Although at the time, you know, I was, uh, speech was required my junior year in high school, and of all the subjects I ever took in my entire school career, I did the worst in speech. I was not a I, I got nervous, I would shake, my, my voice would quiver, my eyes would well up with tears, I would, I would forget what I was supposed to say. I, I memorized Hiawatha's love song, which is a long poem, and I memorized uh, Hamlet's soliloquy. And I remember, you know, typically me, I'm, I'm, I'm di diagramming and studying the words of Hamlet's soliloquy rather than memorizing the thing because that's kind of what I what I tend to do but I but I did a horrible job when it came up to actually presenting it my teacher told me later you know at one of them she said you know your material you just can't you can't deliver it and so even though I was struggle with that that was not my biggest fear that was not the thing that was keeping me from uh, surrendering to the ministry what was the fear that was keeping me from surrendering to God was I had this fear that God was going to call me to some undiscovered place in Africa and I'd never be heard from again. 
And it's silly fear, but you know, it was, it was legitimate. You know, it's it like, I didn't want to go. I, I, didn't want to, I didn't want to be a missionary. I wanted to stay in the United States and be the next Billy Graham. Well, it took a long time for me to discover the ways of God that when God calls a man, He also gives him the desire for the call. That if I was meant to go to Africa, my friend Matt Kaltenberger, who you know, I spent some time with last week, said that he's going to Nairobi, Africa next month. And they go every year, and they look forward to it. And he's on a plane for 18 hours, and I thought, no, thank you. You know, that's just not, that's not me. But I, re- I realized that when God calls you and, and God gives you, uh, a, there's a call on your life, uh, with that will also come the desire for that thing. That if Nairobi, Africa is your destiny, then you will have a heart for Nairobi, Africa. But still, I found myself in the early years, as, as once I did surrender and realized that God was not that way, that He was going, the desire I had was to, was to preach and, and, and teach. Uh, I found myself, though, still struggling with trying to preach like my heroes, you know. And uh, for, a long, for the longest time, I preached like this guy and this hero and that hero, and it took me a long time to become Michael, to preach like Michael. It took a lot of years. Actually, if you were to listen to some of my very, very early messages, which I keep under lock and key because uh, <laughs> I don't want anybody to hear those. I don't even like hearing them. I get the heebie-jeebies when I listen to them. But anyway... When you listen to those and listen to me now, it's remarkably different. It's, it's very difficult to distinguish that this is the, the, this is the same person. But there's something about just becoming who you are that w- that's when you really begin to shine. That's when people really begin to see the glory of the image of God manifested from you. When you try to be somebody else or try to do something you're not called to do, you diminish the glory and the light of God's image from you. I want to talk about that and tie that in a little bit later in my message. But God simply wants you to be you. And as you do, you uniquely reflect God's image and His glory like no one else can. No one can be you. When we try to be someone else, we diminish the glory of God. We hide our light under a basket. So what I want to do this morning is I want to try to finish up my unintentional series you know, I told you this series was unintended. It started out being a one-shot message, you know, and now it's into my, we're into my fourth one, and I could have done a fifth one. And the only reason I didn't do a fifth one was because Dr. Lane is preaching next week, and the following week I'll be in Spain, and so it would be three weeks before I could finish, and I thought, I better finish today. So you're going to get a truncated version of, of uh, what could have been a couple more messages. Uh, but let me get a, give a quick review real, uh, as, as quickly as I can. I began this, fear, this series with this phrase. If you'll go ahead and go to the next slide. I began this series with this phrase here. Where is your God? Because this, this is David's critics. Are, David's critics are taunting him with this question. Where is your God? And it's a legitimate question. When I read that several weeks ago, and I was reading the Psalms and that left off the page, I realized it's a legitimate question on the hearts of non-believers. Because non-believers both want and need to see some evidence of God in us. I have mentioned that sinners were attracted to Jesus, but were they, they were repulsed by the non-believers, I mean, excuse me, the religious leaders of the day. Why is it, and that was a big question to me, why was it that sinners were attracted to Jesus, the most holy man who ever lived? So it wasn't that 
they were, they were repulsed from the religious leaders because they were too holy. They were attracted to Jesus who was all about God. He, he, he uh, emitted God everywhere he was. He talked about God. So it wasn't there was too much God on him. They were attracted to that. So what was it that attracted sinners to Jesus but repulsed them from the religious leaders? And it's no different today. It's an important question to reflect on. If sinners flock to Jesus, why is it that they are not attracted to us? Why is it that that sinners aren't attracted to come to church and and, and discover God here? Are not attracted to you? Why is that? So two or three weeks ago, I said I believe that there are five reasons. I believe God gave me five reasons sinners were attracted to Jesus. And I gave you the first two last week. I'm going to give you the last three and kind of give you an epilogue to finish up. So let me just real quickly review the the first two. The reason sinners were attracted to Jesus was because, number one, Jesus was attracted to sinners. That's a no-brainer, but it needs to be said. Jesus was attracted to sinners. Because Jesus was attracted to sinners, they knew that, they felt that from Him. You cannot fake that. People know. You know when you're loved, don't you? You know when you know when people don't like you, and and so so there was something about Jesus that the people knew that he was attracted to them, that he cared about them. People know if they are truly loved or just tolerated. If I have an aversion to sinners, if I keep my distance for sinners, and if I am repulsed by them, guess what? They're not going to be attracted to me. They're not going to come run into me. Jesus was able to somehow separate the sin from the sinner. He knew that each human being still retained some measure of the image of God, and, and, and he loved that, and he was attracted to that. The second thing I shared with you last week follows on the heels of this one, and the second one is Jesus sought out sinners. Now, you, you might think, well, those, those are the same thing. Not, not at all. You can love someone from a distance. You can have compassion on, you can see someone and think, oh man, I really, my heart goes out to them and not make a move towards them. And so Jesus didn't just love people from a distance. Genuine love moves you. The world sat in darkness, the Bible says, and Jesus was not content to leave them there. Instead, Jesus came out of heaven. We, read, we sang about it. Love came down and rescued me. So Jesus came down out of heaven and said this about himself in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. It says, the Son of Man came to seek the lost. The Son of Man came to seek, he came and sought sinners. He didn't just love the sinner from the immeasurable distance of heaven, but he came to find them. Jesus deliberately looked for sinners. Hear me again, because this, we we need to, if we're going to be like this, if we want sinners attracted to us, then we need to understand Jesus deliberately looked for sinners. When's the last time you deliberately look for a sinner? When you deliberately look for someone needy. It wasn't just, oh, I hope you know one day somebody comes across my path, but he deliberately looked for sinners. There's, there's an acronym I wanna, would like to borrow from the police. It's, uh, we hear it on cop shows sometimes, BOLO, B-O-L-O, which means be on the lookout. You hear that in cop shows. Oh, we put, we put out a bolo. I mean, be on the lookout for. I want to encourage you. I believe we should always be on the lookout for the sinner. 
the hurting, the needy, the outcast, the poor. So, he deliberately sought out sinners. That's number two. Why were sinners attracted to Jesus? Because he was attracted to sinners and he sought them out. And number three, this is a new one this morning, Jesus welcomed sinners. Now listen to me. Again, you may think, oh, that sounds like the first two. Not really. It's one thing to seek and to find sinners in their domain. It's quite another thing to welcome them into your domain. That's the difference. It's one thing to seek and find sinners in their domain, to go out and find them. It's another one to welcome them into your domain. Again, people know when they're not welcome. Laura, you're distracting me. I'm teasing. <laughs> you just do it when I say That's true, you could have. Thank you. Oh, I want to do that. It's one of this. <laughs> I created a monster here. People know, people know when they're not welcome, right? People know when they're not welcome. I think it's one of the great historical hallmarks of the United States. The immigrants come here by the hundreds of thousands. I looked it up just last year, in 2013, there were close to one million legal <laughs> residents, legal residents uh, last year that, be that became legal residents last year. One million in 2013 alone. In the words of a poem by a woman named Emma Lazarus, it's engraven on the on a tablet in the Statue of Liberty. It says this: it "says Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free." the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Those are great words. And those are words that the United States meant, you know, when, when, it, they, were first, when, when they were first penned. And people understood. People, immigrants knew. The hungry, the huddled masses knew that they were welcome into the United States. And, and they're still teeming, you know, in from from all, all kinds of places. But long before we opened our arms to the needy, Jesus gave a very similar invitation in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, when He said, Come to Me. Come to Me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus welcomed sinners, and they did come to Him in droves. They flocked to Jesus. It had always been His desire he said this in John chapter 12, verse 32. He said, And when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to Myself. Jesus' heart was a welcoming heart because He reflected God's heart. I want you to think about this for a minute. God desires for His house to be full. He said that very clearly. He said, I want My house to be full. He wanted people in His domain. He wanted the outcasts, the lame, the halt, the blind, the sick. Those who are needy to come. He said, go out into the highways and byways. Find them and bring them in. Let them be welcome in my house. God's heart was a generous heart of acceptance. There's a verse uh, where the Bible says, now is the acceptable time. God was saying, listen, this is the, now is, and it's an eternal now, now is always the time when God says it's an acceptable time. It's a time when I will accept you. 
In other words, God is always ready to accept. And how many of you know that people want to be accepted? They want to be welcomed. Now again, I want to stress very clearly that it is not the sin we are accepting, but we're accepting the sinner. And don't mix the two up. Don't think, oh, by accepting this sinner, I'm accepting their sin. You're not. Jesus didn't accept the sin of the woman who, was, who, had, who had committed adultery. He said, woman, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. He didn't accept the sin, but He loved her. And He didn't condemn her. And she felt welcomed in the presence of Jesus. Listen, our church needs to be a welcoming place. Sinners need to feel welcome in this place and not feel like they're going to be judged or rebuffed if they walk through those doors. The fourth reason people were attracted to Jesus was Jesus cared about their stories. Now, I've talked enough about this in the past. I've spent some time over the years talking about this that that I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but let me just say again and remind you that everybody has a story. You have a story. But sinners have a story. And most people need to tell their story to someone who cares and someone who will listen. The problem is, for most of us, we have a listening problem. Ask my wife if I have a listening problem. We have a listening problem. We're often too selfish to spend the time necessary for someone to empty their hearts to us. It's either inconvenient, we don't want to spend the time, we're impatient, or we're wanting to get our words in. We're ready to jump in. We're ready to interrupt. We're ready to... Sometimes we're already composing our own response to what they're saying before they've even finished because we want want them, while they're taking a breath, to be able to jump in and say something. We have a listening problem. There was something about Jesus that somehow Jesus knew the stories of the people. I remember his encounter with the woman at the well. He knew her story. And I'm not sure how he knew. I know it wasn't mental telepathy. Jesus didn't have some magical special abilities or powers that we don't have. I I hope you understand that and, and that it's very clear that Jesus Christ came to live as a man and lived as a man with no special abilities. So he didn't have anything we don't have. So somehow he knew this woman's story. And I believe in this case, he both listened to God and to the woman. He heard God and he heard the woman. But I believe that this is a key to ministry. I believe this is a key to someone's heart. I believe that if you can get someone comfortable enough with you to open up and pour their heart out to you, that they're open to hear about your God. They're open to hear the answers. But in order to get them comfortable enough, it requires numbers one, two, and three. You have to be attracted to them You have to seek them out and and they have to feel welcomed. And then you hear their story. You listen to them. And Jesus listened to people. He listened to their stories. He, He listened for opportunities to reveal God to them. Can you do that? Can you, can you, you know, can you listen for opportunities to reveal God to those around you? The fifth reason sinners were attracted to Jesus is number five, Jesus spoke to their need. We can't be silent. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, and it's a verse that Jesus, I always thought this was significant. 
And it's not necessarily, you know, I wouldn't take it as far as to say this is Jesus' favorite verse. But you have to believe that there was some, some great significance to this verse when after Jesus' baptism, He goes to preach His first message. I, I still remember my first message that I preached. I still remember the subject. And that was when I was 17 or 18 years old. I still remember that. I know that was a long time ago, back in the dinosaur days, but anyway. What would Jesus' first sermon be? They said that they handed a scroll to Him and He deliberately looked because it says He found where it was written. So He scrolled through there and He found where it was written. He found this verse and this is what He found. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound so this is Jesus' first message. He, he reads that, and then he shortest sermon in the world. <laughs> he reads that and says, this day, this is fulfilled in your ears. Rolled up the scroll, gave it back to him. The end. Amen. Gives an invitation. Not really. But anyway, so this is, his, and this is what he was saying. He says, this is me. This is what I came to do. And notice what he came to do. His first text that he chose to preach from, what he is saying, it was his mission to speak to the poor, uh, some translations say uh, anointed me to preach good news to the poor. But the point is, he used words, he spoke to the poor, and he spoke, proclaimed liberty to the captives. In other words, his mission was to speak to the poor and to the captives. Here's, what it, here's the point. He, his words met them at their point of need. His words met them at their point of need. He brought good news to the poor. He proclaimed liberty. What do captives need? They need liberty. So he spoke. He proclaimed liberty to the captives. Jesus spoke to the need. The Bible tells us various ways that describes the speech of Jesus in the Bible in the, in the, book, in the Gospels. Uh, for instance, that he spoke with authority. He also, the Bible says, he spoke his words imparted life. Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we... Uh, uh, Jesus invited the disciples one time to leave. He said, you know, you can leave if you want to. Peter said, to whom shall you go? You have the words of life. So his words were words of life. The Bible also says his words were spiritual words. But I like this verse specifically in Luke chapter 4, verse 22, where it talks about Jesus' words being gracious. I love this. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. How would you describe the words that come out of your mouth? How would other people describe the words that come out of your mouth? Would they say this? They marvel at the gracious words that come out of your mouth. In other words, they were words that spoke grace. Jesus had the ability to speak with authority because it says that, that he spoke with authority. And yet the people that heard him received life and grace from that. In other words, People heard him and went away feeling better about themselves. You know, some people can speak with authority and you, and you leave feeling worse about yourself. There's plenty of that that goes around. You can be around some people and they speak and you go away feeling like a slug. Jesus had the ability to speak with authority and encourage, and be, encourage people and build them up and set people free. 
And I don't know about you, it's no wonder people were attracted to, you, to him, wouldn't you be? Are there people in your life when you hear them speak and you feel encouraged and you just can't, can't get enough of, of being around them because they encourage you and they build you up? I want to be your best friend. When we, when we speak with words of grace, when we speak with words of life, people are attracted to that. The question is, do we even speak up when we need to? So often in our life, you know, even when we have opportunities, when we hear people talking about things and we, we think, you know, there's something in us that thinks, man, I ought to say something about that, but I don't want to meddle. I don't want to, I don't want to get involved. I could say this, but eh, they'll think I'm weird. And so we don't speak. And so if you, want to, if you want to be, if you want people to be attracted to the God in you, you have to reveal the God in you and is a God who speaks words of grace and words of mercy and words of love. Now, let me kind of give you a little epilogue. I want to wrap this up with a, a bit of an epilogue about our responsibility as Christians because if you want, people, if you want sinners attracted to you, you have to emulate those five things that, G, that, that Jesus. You have to be attracted to sinners. You have to seek them out. You have to welcome them. You have to, uh, <laughs> number four, my mind just, <laughs> junior high speech class coming back to me. I'm suddenly, uh, uh, I know the fifth one. The fourth one was, <laughs> Jesus cared about their story, see? Uh, Jesus cared about, you have to care about their story and you have to speak to their need. Our responsibility as Christians, you might call it our mission as Christians. In order for us to truly get a heart for mission, for what our mission is, I believe we have to look at the bigger picture. The real question is, what is God's mission? Once we discover God's mission, then we can get in on that. Make no mistake, God has a mission, and each of us are simply co-workers. Let me show you verse three, uh, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 9. We are God's co-workers. It is God's mission, not ours. It's God's mission. And we're co-workers with God. Let me tell you, we asked the wrong question. Now listen to this, because this is an important statement here. We asked the wrong question when we ask this. Where does God fit in the story of my life. The real question is, where does my life fit into this great story of God's mission? See, there's a huge difference between those two. Let me say that again. The wrong question is, where does God fit into the story of my life? The real question is, where does my life fit into this great story of God's great mission? God has a great mission. And we are a part of that great mission. We are co-workers with Him in that great mission. Our mission has to be God's mission. And God's desire is for His glory to cover the earth as the waters covers the sea. We are to have, folks, we are to have a transformative impact on the people that we touch. We do this by reflecting His glory to everybody around us. I've already talked about letting our light shine. The Bible says we're all lights. We're, we're to let our light shine. We, we looked at Matthew. It says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So 
We've already talked about the need to let our light shine. And how do we do this? We do this by reflecting God. There's something attractive about that. How many of you know that light attracts, especially to those who are sitting in darkness? Let me share one of my long, long time favorite verses in the Bible, and it's near the other favorite verse that we just looked at a few minutes ago. It's Isaiah chapter 60. It says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and His glory will be seen seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light. Nations, sinners, non-believers, shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Shine and they will come. Reflect God's glory and they will come. They will be attracted to you. And let me say something about arising and shining because this is not a prediction. This is a summons. This is a mandate. This is an imperative. God is saying, listen, church. Listen, Christian. Arise and shine. Why? Because our light has already come. The glory of the Lord has already risen upon us. And when we shine, then people will come to the brightness of that shining. When you shine, people will be attracted to your God and they will not be chiding you with words like, oh yeah, show me your God. But they'll see see your God all over you. Let me remind you, how do we shine? A couple of verses real quick. I'm summing this up, but let me show you a couple of real quick verses. How do we shine? Look at this. This is near Isaiah chapter 60. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. God's saying, listen, how do we, how do we shine? We, 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 we people of, of integrity. We do good works. We, we, we minister to people. We, we, uh, we speak words of comfort to the hurting. We satisfy the desire of the afflicted. And in other words, it's all about let, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Living a life that exemplifies the good God that we serve. One final verse, and I'm going to close this down. This is an interesting verse. It says, teach servants to be subject to their masters and everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. In other words, do good. Do good works. Be people of integrity. Speak good words. And God says when you do that, you'll make God attractive. The word attractive there is the, is the Greek word cosmeo, where we get our word cosmetics. You know, saying adorn yourself with good works. And when you do that, people will be attracted, not to you, but to your God.